How can we better equip ourselves to take on the new day, our goals, and the world? How do we stoke our inspiration? By dropping in, we'll hear from credible experts on ways to thrive in this environment. As persons trying to cope, as workers learning to pivot in our careers, and as those curious about life, wellness, family, healing, and humor, we'll learn by sharing stories. Like the watering hole, dropping in is a communal place. People who've had the courage to tell their stories offer the nuggets they've gathered along the way. They bring us the spark to confront what matters. Everybody everywhere is on a hero's journey of trying to survive and do well. Stories from these diverse sources pave the way, even if the paths are new or unknown. Drop in with us to discover the roots and where we go from here. And now, here's our host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're waking up just in time from a trance with the pandemic for Election Day. Whatever our fatigue may be, we're at the threshold of a voting day where the stakes are high. If you abhor violence and infractions against human rights, we've got the storyteller for you, Hendrika DeVries, author of a memoir that will rock your world when a toy dog became a wolf and the moon broke curfew. It's published by She Writes Press, and it's harrowing and sweet, and it's the winner of the May Sarton Women's Book Award for Memoir. It's an extraordinary story, and it's full of something we all need, magic. Good morning, Hendrika. Thanks for being with us. Well, good morning, Diane, and thank you for having me on your show. This has to be the one of the longest, most fun book titles ever. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, I, I, it is a little long, isn't it? It's a, um, but so much is conjured, right? It's it's all these signs and symbols. Um, do you want to uh, talk to us a little bit about the significance of these signs and symbols? The dog that became the wolf, the moon absolutely, that broke curfew. Absolutely, yes. I'd love to. Um, yes, when I after I'd written the story and I was thinking about a title, uh, I had some rather mundane titles like A Girl from Amsterdam or Reweaving Memories of the War. And my my youngest daughter, who's very creative and a writer herself, said, Oh, Mom, that sounds so boring. What what are some of the really great memories that you have from that time that should be in the title? So I started thinking, and there the toy dog that became a wolf and the moon that broke curfew actually refer to two events that I describe in the book at length. Um, they were important, important events. Um, they also describe a deeper meaning, though, and I have taught um, mythology and uh, psychology, so I, and I'm Jungian-oriented in my psychological orientation, so I love metaphor. And um, a toy dog that became a wolf started out with my dad uh, when I was little, little daddy's girl for the first few years of my life. My dad telling me nighttime stories that um, showed me that animals and beings, fantastical beings, could change their shape. And I had a little toy dog, and I said, could that little toy dog change its shape? And my dad said, well, sure, why do you want it to be? And I said, oh, a big wolf. And out of that um, 
became a whole story, uh, which uh, I won't go into right now, but it is in my book because that little toy dog became a very important connection with my dad. It was a guiding light, the toy dog, a real, uh, yes. Um, But both of these these images, the toy dog that becomes a wolf and then the moon that breaks curfew, to me also express an awakening female strength during those war years, um, because my, my, my book really tells the story of being a young girl in Amsterdam when Amsterdam was occupied by the Nazis. And so I see these images as, as expressing the, the strength that the women had to draw on during those, those years. Um, you know, I come from a generation where women were expected to be like toy dogs, and yet I saw my mother and other women draw on a, a wolf-like strength uh, Hendrika, in their resistance. Yes, and the moon. Oppression. Right, and the moon in astrology signifies the feminine, the intuitive side, the subconscious side. Um, your your story, I think that um, we'll, we'll anchor it just again here. We're in the Netherlands. It's wartime. This is a little-known aspect of history for many of us who learn about the Second World War through history books and don't have the breadth of scope, for example, to know what the war was like in neighboring countries other than Germany, because the main action, of course, is going on with the Nazis and the Luftwaffe in Berlin, but yours is a story which takes place in in really highly impacted zones. Your father is taken out of, of the Netherlands and sent to a prisoner of war camp in Germany as a worker because he is healthy, and many of the men in Germany have been siphoned off for the army. So when you talk about the emergence of the female strength, it also comes from the men are gone. The ones that are left with you are not necessarily the strong ones. And this is a um, particularly painful absence for you, right? You are now left with um, a void where your father once was. But before he leaves, what do you do? You give him the toy dog. Yes. Um, we're allowed because under the Geneva Convention at the time... Um, if men were taken prisoner of war, we were allowed to say goodbye to them. So we were lucky in that way. And I took him, the tiny toy dog. It was only a tiny, like three by four inch little toy, stuffed toy dog. And I asked a German guard to give it to him. And my dad kept that little toy dog during his two-year absence. When he came home after the two years, we did not recognize each other because we'd both gone through our individual trauma. And it wasn't until he took that little, the remains of the little toy dog out of his pocket and handed it to him, to me, that I could bond with him again. And I tell the story at great length in my book, and it was actually very hard to write that part. I had to keep going back to my computer, and I'd break into tears, and then mm-hmm. have to redo it again. So um, it, it holds a lot of emotional energy for me. 
I understand that. It's very powerful. And waiting for the liberation in Amsterdam, as you did with your mother, it was a desperate place, and you've captured it with poignancy. Uh, Congratulations for that. And you, when you have answered the door and your father is standing there upon return, you and your mother are, in fact, it, it emerges later, medically, you are about three weeks away from dying of starvation. I think people are not aware of the desperate circumstances that individuals, civilians um, incurred during that time. It wasn't just a period of waiting. It was a period of absolutely survival and scrambling um, for resources, food among the top priority, and you and your mother staying alive by slicing down tulip bulbs as slices of erstwhile bread. It's incredibly touching. I'm not at all surprised there was an outpouring of emotion. How, how did this mythical world, it, it came from your father's storytelling. He had always told you stories as a child, and as you say, believed in shapeshifters. How did that affect your worldview and your ability to write this story and then become an analysand, an analysist? How has that affected you? <laughs> okay, that, that's a, a huge question. It actually comes from two sides. It came from my dad's gift for imagination, which um, I, I inherited from him, and that kept me going because I could always imagine a different world, a better world, even in the worst of circumstances. But I also come from a mother line of women highly intuitive women that believed in dreams. My mother and grandmother would discuss their dreams. And in fact, when I became a teenager, it surprised me that other people didn't just normally discuss their dreams over breakfast. It it was such a part of my upbringing with my mother, too, so that even though she was a more factual person, uh, she loved to read biographies, for instance, but she had that intuitive side to her. That, that, And I think that, of course, later on prepared me to become more Jungian-oriented when I discovered Carl Jung's book, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Uh, I went, oh my goodness, there's a kindred spirit. Dreams mm-hmm. are important. And so I think the combination, uh, Diane, of... Uh, a father with imagination who allowed me to follow that imagination and a love for story. And then my mother's, my mother line with that deep intuitive connection to what we would now call the collective unconscious, um, that, that connection to others and to something bigger than ourselves, um, helped me deal with the trauma in a way that led me almost naturally to, to psychology and especially the field of depth psychology. Mm-hmm. And dreams are facts. I, <laughs> I think dreams. I think of dreams as facts. They they tell us something. Maybe they're facts we don't want to know right off the bat. But you know, when you break it down, they're, they they are. They're they're information. They're information from an, another source, a more uncommon source. And your mother Absolutely. is yeah. yes. Yeah. And you 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 have this, as you say, connectivity. This conduit from both sides of your parentage. And I'm also you know back on this idea of the intuitive side and also being able to 
project or imagine different outcomes other than the one you were in, which was dire, and how that helped you cope during those years um, is, and and is it something that um, you know? Is it something that we engage in now? Is it something that even informs our sensibilities now? Or has it kind of died out? Um, I wonder, you know, about its place in your life these days. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Oh, it's one I've been pondering a lot this year because of the pandemic and, of course, the, you know, the sort of uh, upheaval in our nation. Um, I think it became very strong in the 70s and 80s, and especially as women, uh, I personally went on a quest for the goddess, like so many women did in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I even went to a seminary, an Episcopal seminary, because I was uh, an activist in the movement for uh, women priests in, in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I never became ordained, but I studied theology and then went into psychology with that that kind of desire and hope that our collective consciousness would move us into a kinder, more unified direction. And I always felt we were heading that way. And then in the last four years, it's been very hard to to hang on to that. But at the same time, it has kind of uh, drawn me back into those times during the war, when my mother and others had to hold on to really very little but their own faith, their mm-hmm. own strength. And, and you mentioned earlier, there's uh, the, the history of Amsterdam itself during the war, especially the hunger winter of the last few months is very little known. Some 20,000 people died of cold and starvation, but I think partly because when it was discovered how many millions of people had been slaughtered in concentration camps, the the, the 20,000 that died of starvation seemed like such a small blip on the screen of, of mm-hmm. horror and trauma. So mm-hmm. it took many years before we could go back and look at what happened to to that little northwestern corner in the Netherlands, which lay neglected for about five months while the Allies were fighting to conquer Berlin. And very little has been written about that hunger winter. And I, but I think, you know, it, it's, it's coming out more, especially as, as young people are writing about their parents who yes. survived it. And for me, it's enabled me to go back and look at my mother's strength during mm-hmm. that time. And that's been very important because I can hear her voice now during this year when I, so many of my friends and colleagues, you know, we look around and we go, what happened? Why yes. are we here? What do we do this year? What did we and, do wrong? Uh, you know, her, her strength echoes in me. <laughs> There's so much echo, I think, in these times, and it's hard to really grasp, you know, totalitarianism, loss of rights, loss of female rights. Um, There are things that are echoing, and there was this ripple effect throughout Europe. 
as you say, you know, given the magnitude of loss in Germany um, in the Jewish population, it's hard to reconcile, you know, the 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 profound suffering that was going on around in tangent with that. And we are going to talk about um, some of the resonance with what's happening now. The thing I'd like to point out um, to our listeners is that your mother also was very pragmatic. During this time, an activist, you mentioned that word, she brought into your home Nell, who was a young Jewish girl. Your mother joined the resistance and she harbored a young Jewish girl in your home. She became uh, a companion to you, Nell. She slept with you and you had someone to keep you warm at night and someone closer to your own age. How do you feel in terms of the danger, the safety and the activist balance? You have to take a risk sometime to do that, right? How do I feel in what way? I didn't quite in, get in, the in terms of in, in terms of, you know, there was the sense of, well, your mom, she sort of jeopardized your safety in a way. But I think you were good with it, right? In the book, you felt the importance of your mother taking a stand and helping others. It's because until we're all free, none of us are free. And I had that sense about you, even as a young girl. Yeah, you know what she did by joining the resistance and and breaking Nazi-imposed laws, uh, my mother really sowed the seeds for my adult feminism. She she modeled and gave me a strength and, and showed me, even as a real little girl, the limitations of culturally imposed gender rules that taught women to be passive. So... I've always been grateful for that, that she, she taught me not to be a passive little toy dog. You know, she, <laughs> she taught me it was okay to be a strong woman and to resist oppression. And she also, um, she taught me something very profound. I, I'm a mother. I have three children and four grandchildren. And she was asked several years after the war, she was confronted and, and, and by someone in the family, actually, who said, how could she have risked her child's life and her own to hide a Jewish girl? And she said two things that have always stuck with me. One was, I would hope that someone would do the same for my daughter if circumstances were reversed. And I've always held that with my own children. And then the second one was, not one of our children is safe unless they're all safe. And I think that one has resonated with me all my life. And, and you know, this year when I, I especially was horrified at children being separated from their parents at the borders, I was thinking about that of how can we let other children suffer and, and remembering that not one of our children is safe unless we make sure they're all safe. So. Uh, my mother has always lived inside of me. Now, trust me, as a teenager, we, we battled. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was a normal teenager. But yes. she's always lived inside of me as that, that feminine strength that, that she gave to me. Yes. And Hendrika, a kind of a, a flame of, I think, a sort of flickering flame of strength. There was a wonderful scene where your mother sits you in the kitchen, in the kitchen with all the lights blazing and the oven on to leave you with an impression of total warmth and light, because what happens next is none of that. 
We're going to take a commercial break now and come back with Hendrika DeVries and continue talking about her fabulous saga. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with a wonderful memoirist who wrote a book called When a Toy Dog Became a Wolf and the Moon Broke Curfew. It's just as romantic and as simultaneously harrowing as you might imagine a story about World War II Amsterdam and Rotterdam is. And Hendrika de Vries lived through this period in her childhood. Hendrika, you have brought this period to life in a way that very few authors have. I really commend you for the poignancy of it and sitting in that kitchen with the oven and the lights blazing and your mother wanting you to capture this memory of what it looked like with the electricity on. Because what happened then, it went off. You were then left to cope and fall back on your own devices with your mother. And during that time, access to information became key. Being able to trust the information that you heard and who was a friend and who was a foe, that became really central to your existence. I wonder if you can draw parallels now to what's going on with us today in this country and do you see similarities in in some of the in some of the sort of crisis that we're in? Um, yes, I really do. Of course, um, I think that what I see is the sort of hopeless emotional morass that people get tangled up in, and that what I learned from the years as a child is how important it is to connect with like-minded people. My mother joining the resistance gave me great modeling of people who held values, values of human goodness. Um, there, were, there were neighbors, there were uh, you know, resistance, resistance workers, and I mentioned some of them in my book, who who brought that strength into my life and that hopefulness 
And what I see this year especially is our need for a resilience that maybe we haven't been called on for several decades. You know, we've had decades of fairly, fairly peaceful living, especially here in the U.S. And I remember that with my mother, the especially during the, the, the time uh, of the hunger winter, that she established rituals, rituals of hope, um, rituals, small rituals of what, what we had do? control over. You know, she made me wash my face. She made me uh, make the bed, and it was and it was very clear that that was to show that we still had control over certain things. And she would say, "Take care of the things that we have control over. Those are the things we we can we can manage." Um, and then she would she never would let me be a victim. She never allowed that. She was a very strong-willed woman. Uh, which gave us some some teenage, <laughs> interesting teenage years as mm-hmm. I was trying to find my own identity. But it was what she gave me was a sense of that we're all heroes and heroines of our own story. And she made it real clear that heroes and heroines uh, had to go through challenges to to make the world a better place. So combine that with my dad's sense of imagination that I'd gotten as a little girl and then meeting the people who worked in the resistance uh, who would secretly come, who would come to the house and secretly listen to a radio. And, you know, especially the, the listening to the radio, which could get you shot in those years, um, reminds me now of... When people make light of the media, I, I'm I'm I, I worked as a as a teenager. I worked at a newspaper, and I'm really a staunch supporter of the press and the media, um, the the freedom of the press. And I think we need to defend that with all our might because I remember as a child that when the newspapers are taken away and the radio was taken away, we could no longer connect with those who were fighting for us, with those who had similar values. And I remember asking my mother why she risked uh, our lives to listen to a radio when, when it could get us, get us shot. Um, and she said, because the, the Nazis don't want us to be strong. They want to make us afraid. And you, you've seen in my book, Diane, that one thing that my mother always um, protected me from was, do not let them make you afraid. Go to the people who are fighting for us. And the, we would listen to Queen Wilhelmina broadcasting from England, where the Dutch government was in exile, to the people of the Netherlands. And that gave people strength. And we would find out where the allies were, who was fighting for us. So That's that freedom of the press was something that I learned in my bones, in my blood and bones as a little girl. That's tremendous. I don't know, um, did I veer away from your question? I think you went right to the heart of it. I think you really hit the point of here we are on Voice America Internet Talk Radio, and we're as connected as we can be globally. And it's something that 
creates its own source of strength of people, as you say, like-minded people, people have values that whether or not they are represented well by their own governments, have them nonetheless and are able to talk and to listen to one another. And the strength that's in that, I think, is it's profound. It's, it's also a very beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful thing. And it's disrespected at the highest levels of government um, at times in this country. So mm-hmm. we have to preserve these rights, and we have to uh, always... Uh, I think, uphold the freedom of the press. And um, as you say, sometimes it's much harder than others and there's much more risk involved. But thank goodness that you are here to um, record this story and to show an example of really, you know, the toughness that went on in this generation to take these risks, to stay connected, to be vitally empowered by one another. You talk about also... What came next, which was kind of the silent, the silent generation, the generation of people your age, my age, many of us who lived at a time when secrets were kept. That's sort of Mm -hmm. the flip side, right? That's sort of when we want to sweep everything under the rug. And how does that work? That sort of dyad of, you know, needing openness and connectivity, and at the same time, enabling secrecy. Yeah, it's an interesting diet, isn't it? Well, I think what I've looked back on was how our survival, um, my mother and my survival, and Nell's survival, the Jewish girl we were hiding, depended on silence, total silence. Our... Mm -hmm. Our, the resistance movement, the people that my mother knew and that I knew in the resistance would all have been uh, killed if we hadn't been silent. So there was a silence was a protection. The only way we could be safe was to be silent. And I think that's such a complex, um, really a complex reality because I, you know, as a, as a therapist, of course, I've worked with people, especially women in abusive relationships or children who've been abused, how silence can sometimes be the only way that people can be safe, which is why I think it's so important to give children a voice and to give everyone a voice. That we, 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 that our voice is one of the most important things that we have. Uh, I have, I have spoken to schools around the country and it's been amazing, Diane. The reception I've gotten from middle schoolers and high school students who, who have said to me when hearing my story, you give me hope. And these mm-hmm. are middle school students and high school students in today's world. Yes. And what we've talked about is their voice to, to mm-hmm. let them have a voice and how for when we're in when we're being oppressed or when we're being bullied um, what we're what we feel is that the only way we can be safe is to be silent so I think that that combination it's a wonderful question that you ask because I think that combination of our silence and our voice needs to be fleshed out. We need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to let let people tell their stories, let children tell their stories, 
give a voice. And look at the kind of role model that you've become, a kind of uh, heroine, the heroes and heroines that are real, who have gone into hiding, who have had to suppress their voice in order to survive. And I feel as though there's a collective right now holding of our breath. We're waiting. We're waiting right now. We're waiting yeah. until this pandemic is over. We're waiting until we can breathe again, till we can feel safe again. All yeah. members of our community can feel safe again, all of them. And I think that yeah. it, is, it is a time when we really have to respect and uphold um, our neighbors who are in hiding. Um, and as you say, there are circumstances that call for it. And it's, it's kind of finding that balance and providing the venue that when it's time to come out of hiding, that it's okay to speak. It must have felt kind of rusty and unused when you, when you came out of hiding. And, and, and you, you must have started, did you start writing? Um, when did you start writing? And how has it been for you to write this book as part of the processing of this journey? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the hiding because as with all trauma, you know, trauma can go into hiding in our bodies, in our psyche. Mm -hmm. And so in my teenage years, I, the, the trauma got hidden. I didn't deal with it. Now I was fortunate. I was a competitive swimmer. So I got a lot of my body was able to use that energy, that, that anger probably inside of me to, to swim fast. And, mm -hmm. uh, but, um, the stories, my mom and I used to talk about the war. We, she was very open about it, and uh, we, we did talk about it. So it wasn't totally in hiding. The trauma was, was not expressed too much, but we did, we did refer back to wonder how Nell is doing and, goodness, how did we survive those days? And um, she would never let me waste food, of course, because of the hunger winter. The, the stories, the writing itself, um, started to really happen when, as a family therapist in California, I, I started teaching counseling psychology and mythological studies program at a uh, institute called Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And from time to time in my classroom lectures and my public presentations, I would use anecdotes from my childhood to illustrate kind of the multi-layered and archetypal depth that connects and unites us in our human experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and, and to illustrate the strength of the psyche to, to heal and recover the resilience of all our, our shared human experiences. So when I would stress those, the, that healing power, I was often urged to write a memoir about my childhood. Um, mm -hmm. I eventually did include some segments of my story and articles I wrote for a journal called Spring Journal. Um, I started writing bits and pieces of a manuscript, but you know, Diane, it always seemed to me somewhat self-indulgent to publish a memoir because right. I've really lived a long, successful life, and so many others, you know, suffered really torturous death during those days. And it wasn't really until I saw the images on my television screen of the neo-Nazis marching in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I began to read the escalating attacks on houses of worships 
the increase of the hate crimes, and and then the resurgence of racism and blatant attacks, you know, on our women's reproductive rights and freedoms, that I began to think of it differently. I began to think of it as a as a duty or a responsibility, because mm-hmm. I've seen freedoms that we take for granted being whisked away at lightning speed. So. It no longer seemed like a choice. It seemed like I, I had an obligation, a duty to the human dignity and the soul. And, um, you know, I know what it means when survival comes at the cost of your voice. I've seen, right. you know, human beings dragged out of homes and slaughtered at random. I, I've watched it as a little girl um, because they didn't obey or they were seen, deemed, quote-unquote, inferior um, but I've also, and, and um, a friend, a rabbi the other day reminded me of that in a post he posted, I've also seen the power of human resistance and resilience. Mm-hmm. And so in the writing, I began by focusing on that. I focused on the resistance and the resilience, and that helped me then write about the trauma and, and the horror of, of it all. Andrika DeVries has written a memoir called When a Toy Dog Became a Wolf and the Moon Broke Curfew. And thank goodness that you were called to do this, that you felt the mandate to do it. Your story also serves as a beacon for others. It serves to show, again, the resilience. Hendrika DeVries believes that memories hold the keys to our future. Her life experiences from the dark days of Nazi-occupied Amsterdam as a child through her years as a swimming champion, young wife, and mother in Australia and a move to America in the 60s have infused her work as a therapist, teacher, and writer. You can tell there's a big arc there, and there's a lot of... um, gaps in the story that we want to fill in but first we'll take a commercial break don't go away we'll be right back on dropping in voice america is on your favorite smart speaker if you have alexa or google home go ahead and give us a try hey alexa Play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking with Hendrika DeVries, a fascinating woman and author of 
a gripping memoir, one that I would urge you to read if you're trying to cope with any kind of trauma or absorb a loss or just to understand and perceive history and today through the lens of history. As Andrika just was saying, we're a hair's breadth away sometimes from losing our rights. We're not even aware of it. It creeps up on you. And sometimes we do have to, right, unite and take a stand against it. So it couldn't be better timing to be listening to Hendrika talk about her own experience and how it really is a gift, Hendrika, that you shared it through this memoir. There's a scene in it that I think was um, pivotal. You're burying the radios. Your mother has realized the danger of having the radio because it Mm -hmm. symbolizes communication. It symbolizes the resistance and it's become too dangerous. She takes, you hear this ungodly sound. You look out the window. She's smashing the radio to bits and she's burying the pieces in the ground. You go down there and start to help her do that. And it must have been crushing in a way to realize that this is what you had to do to survive is to cut yourself off. You went into a kind of dissociative state and you talk about how your other mind knew exactly what to do to paw through the earth, to put the parts of the radio in the ground. How, how was that for you? Well, let me start by that psychologists who've read my book have said that my experiences, and um, I wanted my experiences to come from the child, the raw experiences, how I experienced it. So I wrote it from that child experience with some reflections as an adult. But psychologists have said that I've described the state of dissociation perfectly without going into a psychological analysis of it. And I think that's what happened. Um, How was it for me? It, it almost lived in my memory as a video or a movie. I, it's almost like I wasn't there. I knew what I had to do, but I wasn't emotionally there. And it wasn't until years later, Diane, when I started working on all my trauma uh, in analysis, that I could feel the feelings, that I could feel the horror and the terror of my mom suddenly being this other woman, this, this, this terrified woman. But that happened much later, and I think that's the complexity of working with trauma. Trauma comes in bits and pieces. We are so good at dissociating as human beings. And uh, as a family therapist, you know, for over 30 years, I've marveled at the emotional strength and the power of our resilience that allows us to go, and all of us, we all have our stories, go through unmentionable traumas, losses, and just go on with life. You know, the next day we went, my mom and I, we stayed at our neighbor's place, who were also members of the resistance, and then the next day, here Nell had been taken away, my mom had been questioned at gunpoint, interrogated, we buried the radios, and then we faced the hunger winter. We faced six, six months of gradually almost starving to death, all the power being taken away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, 
the ability of the human psyche to to bury things for a while is is astonishing and i think what i'd like that. to say is that the resilience we all have in us is something that we need to really stay connected to because mm-hmm. that resilience creates an emotional freedom and um you know it's it's there in all of us and my resilience. mother always said there were no problems there were only challenges to be solved so <laughs> I you know, I, and i've always used that in my therapy I, I believe that it's it's an indelible, I think it's an indelible uh, sense of wisdom. Well, resilience is our superpower, right? And even in an average life of loss, the average life incurs a lot of loss. It's just oh, part absolutely. of our... Right, yes. a part of oh, our yes. human cycle. And in your memoir, yeah. I think you, you struck the complexity of, yes, describing this as a child with the limited amount of knowledge that you would have of it, and then at other times as a memoirist, going back and shedding light on it from the point of view of an adult and even as um, an enlightened archetypical Jungian uh, psychologist. And that I thought was really, really kind of great. You know, Jung does talk about the matrix, right? The intangible matrix between us and what gets violated and what is held together even when, um, you know, violence is occurring or how how it is penetrated. It's all very fascinating and relevant stuff. Um, I, I think that, you know, we've got a generation of cyclists and swimmers uh, on our hands because all of us, all of us that have endured, you know, yeah, the average trauma or more are out there physically trying to work it out, work it off, work through it. Um, and and that helps, right? I mean, you you take this dissociative place and you rekindle it. You bring yourself back alive through these activities, these mental, emotional, and physical activities. Your yeah. ongoing, your ongoing dream world and visions. Um, you say that your spiritual search began with the full moon. Where where did it take you from there? <laughs> with the full moon. Yeah. Well, you know, the moon uh, is is seen in our Western mythology as kind of less than the sun because it's passively reflecting the light uh, as opposed to the burning sun. But I've learned to look at the moon as, as being the light, the feminine light. It's, it's seen in mythology very often as feminine that, that shines a light in the dark. And so it begins, I think, with us Shining a light on the dark spaces, the, the traumas we've hidden, the voice, the voice we have buried, the, the, the places we have in ourselves that we have been afraid to address. And with me, it, uh, and often, it starts with a later trauma that re-triggers the earlier trauma. And with me, it, it started really, my marriage broke up and my dad, who I adored, uh, who was very respectful of women. He'd been uh, raised by a single mom um, her, himself because she was a widow. He, her, his father died when he was six. So um, when he died and my marriage uh, fell apart, I, I went into analysis and I had to deal with the old trauma to deal with the current trauma. And I actually made a pilgrimage to Amsterdam and worked with a Jungian analyst who was also a rabbi 
uh, and I, I did sessions with him in Dutch so I could let the little girl speak in her original language. And he made me venture out and explore different sites in Amsterdam where events had happened. And then I would go to his office in the afternoon and and work on them, work through them. So I, I think the the moon for me is that that shining a light in those into those places where for me it was the child's raw experiences of violence and betrayal and loss and bigotry but also then discovering the the incredible resistance and strength that my mother passed on to me does that kind of answer your question about Absol- the moon Abs- absolutely and i love the idea that it somehow the power of it is even more profound because it's shining in the dark um you know the sun is shining in the light so it's really the contrast <laughs> right. and it, yeah. it's contrast it's harder work almost it's harder uh, work for the light to travel here. It is the reflected light of the sun. But, you know, I wonder if you haven't actually done that with your book is to shine a light in the dark. I I feel that you have. And you described yourself as this odd, dark child scarred from the war who felt, you know, damaged. But that's always the one who writes, right? The outsider, the observer, the one who held back even when the Allied forces came and they came in the form of the Canadians um, to Amsterdam, um, that you you even held back. There was a part of you that couldn't quite rejoice. You couldn't quite let yourself go um, because it's scary, right? It's scary to trust and it's scary to trust yourself. I wondered how you learned to do that and what some of the lingering vestiges were from that time you know, in terms of malnourishment, are you, you know, frugal? Do you, you know, what are some of the vestiges that, you, that you're left to live with? Well, I, I do store cans of food in my cupboards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I believe it. And I must admit that uh, when this year the, the cupboards are, were overflowing with cans of beans, so my children have always laughed a little at that, um, I think what you what you uh, really point to is the the child in us, and you. I don't know if you remember Diane, because I know you you've done a lot of psychological work yourself. Is that in the eighties there was the child movement, you know, the inner child, and I think mm-hmm. we've lost that a little bit, perhaps that the the child in us carries those raw experiences, right. And so yes. for me, yeah, the dark child, um, as I went to, to analysis, I had to deal with that, that inner child in me. And, but I think that's not uncommon, you know, and we've all got an inner child. Our children are very vulnerable and uh, we, we're very good as a human species uh, in hiding, in, in overcoming those those little children's hurts and wounds and mm-hmm. putting walls around them. But I think we all have that that need to get connected with the, the dark child in us, the child that that held a special place in the family, the child that carried secrets. And, um, uh, you know, your own book is, is wonderful about that. So... Well, uh, 
Thank you. you, I, I you think for me, analysis was very helpful. I, I had many, many years of, of Jungian analysis, and of course, as, an, as a therapist myself, I thought that was very important. I couldn't help my, my clients with their trauma if I didn't address that child in myself. And I love the metaphysics of um, you go back in an analysis, but you also went back physically to Amsterdam. You revisited sites. And I have to think that that's tremendously important. You won't believe it, but we just have a couple of moments left, moments left to speak, and really it's gone by so quickly. You talk about how memories become our future, and I think that's key to that. And your father and mother finally decided that you needed to have a puppy to endure the voyage to uh, Australia. It gave you a kind of tactile rejuvenation of maybe that lost child. And I think that we need to carry that going forward, that no matter what age, um, to tap into that vital um, healing power of of connecting to that child and connecting with one another. You yeah. have been um, wonderful to share with us, uh, Hendrika Javries. It's tangential messages, both keep the dream and listen to your feeling sensing side, not just our brains. And whenever necessary to take action to protect not only ourselves but others. And um, in this freedom, there's the freedom, the freedom for all, not just for a few. So you can find Hendrika on Instagram, hendrika.devries, D-E-V-R-I-E-S dot 92, Facebook, Hendrika Devries, Devries, and a website, a girl from Amsterdam, how how dear and how lovely. When a Toy Dog Became a Wolf and the Moon Broke Curfew is available wherever books are sold. And thank you to Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, our engineers, and to Robert Cialino, our producer. Till next week, stay safe, everyone. Keep the dream alive. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Hendrika. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.